Hey, what's up everybody and welcome back to That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. I'm your host Michael and this episode is Q&A number 106. Before we get into today's questions, big thanks to our sponsors. First, we have Precision Hydration that you can find on precisionhydration.com. Precision Hydration create electrolyte supplements that you can match to your sweat sodium concentration. So depending on if you lose a medium, a low or a high amount of sodium in your sweat, you get the right amount of uh, electrolyte or sodium replacement. Adequately replacing sodium is, as you probably know, very important. And uh, Precision Hydration have created an online sweat test that you can take on their website it says free hydration plan in the navigation bar. Click there, answer your questions, and then you'll get a good ballpark estimate for how much sodium you lose in your sweat and how you should uh, hydrate during your races and uh, even training. You can get 15% off your order with the promo code DETTRIATHLONSHOW15 on precisionhydration.com. And thank you to Roka that you can find on roka.com. Roka are the world-leading manufacturers of wetsuits, trisuits, swimskins, goggles, high-performance eyewear, and prescription glasses and sunglasses. And uh, today I want to highlight their wetsuits and trisuits. One thing that is really cool about all of their wetsuits from the entry level up to the flagship models is that they all have arms-up technology, meaning that you will have less shoulder mobility restriction compared to other wetsuits. But also their trisuits have that. So uh, in some cases you might have an arms-up technology wetsuit, but you have a trisuit that is restricting your movement. That's not the case if you have a Roka trisuit because they have the same technology. Uh, they also have some really cool uh, technology going on depending on which wetsuit you get. But for example, the Maverick X2, the flagship model, has a, a core exoskeleton which will help you use your core more to create further propulsion in the water. They have incredible buoyancy uh, in all their wetsuits, but especially so in the Maverick MX, the max buoyancy wetsuit, and in the Maverick X2. So you'll have a really optimal body position in the water. And now that we're heading towards winter, but there are still races going on, uh, perhaps you would consider a thermal wetsuit. They have that as well. You can get 20% off your order on roca.com forward slash TTS. Now let's get into today's questions, which are from Steph in Australia. Uh, Steph writes, Hi Michael, I have two questions for your Q&A episodes. First, how important are drills and how often should I be doing them? Uh, the second question is, uh, I'm wondering if you could point me in the direction of any resources, article or people that relate to managing training as a female athlete uh, with regard to the menstrual cycle. I'm already aware of Stacey Sims and have bought brought have bought her book however i was a bit perturbed by the fact that she talks about certain diets for certain body types which i don't think is very well founded scientifically and so that made me question her other suggestions a little thank you for everything michael you've done an amazing job with every aspect of scientific triathlon all right thank you steph uh, for your questions let's start with the first one on drills how important are they and how often should uh, you be doing them so I'll start with my general recommendations and uh, what I actually do or well, prescribe in coaching. And then after that, we'll go into a little bit of theoretical background on drills and skill acquisition, motor skill acquisition in general. When it comes to swimming, I think it really depends mostly on if you as a swimmer have a diagnosed flaw in your stroke. 
I'm definitely not a fan of prescribing a lot of drills just for the sake of it. And most usually I will only prescribe drills, like any drills, if an athlete has actually sent me sent a video to me or we have had like a good conversation about their stroke and they know more or less what they might need to improve. So basically, if we have a clearly identified flaw then and we know that there's a drill that might help solve that flaw and uh, that's a situation where i might prescribe drills or another scenario would be maybe they have gotten a video analysis by a third party because i coach remotely so maybe they went to a local swim coach to get a video analysis and uh, then we have together sat down and looked at that and also assessed the recommendations they got from that swim coach and that would be another example of when we would be prescribing drills but essentially uh, I would prescribe drills when we know that there is a particular thing that we want to improve technically and we know that this drill is uh, designed to help solve that issue. Uh, we won't, I won't have drills in workouts for my athletes if I don't know that this is something that, that they are kind of struggling with or is a high priority to work on. So I think that the key here is that uh, you or the athlete, you need to know why you are doing the drills and what it is supposed to translate to in your full stroke swimming. So in cases where you or an athlete has had a video analysis, then this holds true. They have seen exactly what they're doing wrong. Somebody has explained it to them and they know that this is what I'm working on and they know that this drill will potentially help me solve this technical issue because it isolates some particular movement pattern or something to that effect. So in this situation, drills can have big value but in many cases, uh, I see just prescribing drills at, as a waste of time, to be honest, that will not lead to an improvement in the swim stroke because it's not, uh, the athletes are not practicing deliberate practice when, when they're doing the drills because they don't know exactly why they're doing the drills. Or even if they know what the drill is supposed to do, that might not be a flaw in their stroke. That might not be what their main priority should be. And uh, in actual fact, I probably prescribe cues more often than I prescribe drills. So I might have uh, break up my the warm up that I give to to my athletes in some different two to four hundred meter segments, and in one segment I might say focus on pushing water back, and that, that's a cue that I give them. And in another segment of that warm up, I might write focus on well timed breathing, and uh, then. I think that even though the athlete is just swimming, they're actually focusing on what they're doing and they kind of have an idea of what we're trying to work on there. The practice becomes more deliberate and uh, there's a greater chance that they're going to gain something from it. So uh, so that's how basically how I view technical improvements. If we know a particular flaw, then uh, yes, drills can be very valuable. And in that case, I don't see any reason why you couldn't do it every single swim workout you do uh, it doesn't have to be super long it can be a segment of let's say 300 meters where you do a 25 meter drill 25 meter full stroke uh, i would always uh, alternate the drilling with a full stroke swimming where you try to transfer that uh, isolated movement from the drill to the full stroke uh, front crawl but yeah that's uh, in short about swimming and uh, on in running my take on drills is that when done before running or before doing a hard main set on the track, for example, uh, they can be useful for activation and mobilization purposes. And uh, then this can lead to a better performance in the workouts and therefore long-term to better adaptations. The more the athlete uh, might be limited biomechanically by having a limited active range of motion, 
then the greater the effect that this sort of activation mobilization routine will have. But uh, note here that it, depending on what you mean with by drills, my using of the activation mobilization routines might not refer to exactly what you think of as drills. Or some exercises might be, and others not so much. But basically, when I'm talking about these activation mobilization drills or uh, routines, it's more like almost dynamic stretching or dynamic mobilization, general mobilization exercises. So there will be some classic running drills that can make their way into a routine like that because they can bridge the gap between a more pure mobilization and actual uh, mobilization within the context of the running uh, movement pattern. So as an example, a skipping would be a good example of uh, a classic running drill, but that can also be used to bridge the gap between pure mobilization of your uh, hip flexors and uh, actual mobilization within the running specific movement pattern. But then there are some drills that uh, are classic running drills as well that you might think of that I don't think are very useful in this uh, scenario, like uh, running with or high knees, uh, the high knees drill. Theoretically, that too could be a good uh, opener for the hip flexors, but, uh, but I, actually I just think that it tends to compromise uh, the running posture because many athletes tend to do this drill leaning slightly backwards and or arching their back or uh, other things that basically compromise their running form so i don't think that that is a, a very good drill to use but uh, in essence uh, that is how i use drills as part of a mobilization or activation routine before some or uh, some running workouts or even many or all depending on the athlete and this routine can be just uh, five minutes for most athletes i would say i would only give this before like a, a harder run or, or a hard main set but for some athletes, they have really felt the difference in doing this before every single run. And then we do it before every single run. So, uh, And it might look a bit different. Some athletes do uh, some variations, other vari variations of the mobilization drill. But I'll have one linked in uh, the episode description and also a swim activation uh, mobilization drill that I have. Uh, some running drills can also be useful in as part of a plyometric training routine. So again, taking skipping as an example, if you perform skipping by uh, trying to bounce off the ground quickly with a brief but powerful application of force into the ground, that is a great example of a plyometric exercise that is uh, its objective is to target the stretch shortening cycle uh, in the muscles, which is a technical term that you probably don't need to uh, pay too much attention to. But ultimately, that will lead to getting more elastic energy return from your in your running stride. So essentially more free energy in your running. So again, skipping is a great example of something that I would include in plyometric routines that I give to, to my athletes. Uh, and there are some others, but many, many drills are not do not fit the bill for being a plyometric exercise either. I don't prescribe running drills with the direct purpose of improving running biomechanic, biomechanics unless there is a specific known reason that uh, we are aware of uh, that we have perhaps i have seen the athlete run in person or uh, through a video review uh, so in that sense my view is very similar to swimming 
in that I don't think that just doing drills will improve your uh, biomechanics uh, per se, but it could if you have a specific thing that you're working on targeting, improving your uh, some some specific aspect of your running form. Then there might be drills that that we can use to to work on on that specific thing. Um, and uh, yeah, as I mentioned. Uh, that's a bit of a sidetrack but i have the links to the mobilization activation routines for swimming and running in this episode description if you're interested Uh, but if we go into some more theoretical discussions around drills uh, then taking a step back the purpose of doing drills ideally is acquiring or improving a motor skill and there is actually a whole lot of research on acquiring motor skills from various domains, including team sports, individual skill-based sports, like you have racket sports and golf and what have you, throwing, etc. And also endurance sports and uh, many, many others. So I definitely won't go too deep down the rabbit hole because we could spend hours talking about this. But I will link to a review article and to a couple of specific studies from running and swimming because that's what we're talking about. And also to a fantastic layman's summary of the topic, which is an article on science for sport written by uh, Owen Walker and Brett Bartholomew, which is called Coaching Cues. So if nothing else, I would actually recommend any listener that is interested in learning more about uh, skill acquisition and uh, motor skill improvement, go and read that Coaching Cues article. But to summarize what we know from research when it comes to acquiring motor skills, research pretty consistently shows that the best way to do that is by using cues that have an external attentional focus rather than an internal one. So internal cues would be cues that focus on the body and the movement of the body itself, whereas the external cues focus on the movement effect in the context of the external environment, which I admit that sounds very confusing. And I even tried to make it less confusing by rephrasing what is said in research and some articles, uh, but I couldn't figure out a great way to say it. So I'll just illustrate the difference with an example from swimming. An internal focus cue in swimming would be to say, for example, get your elbow high and your forearm into a vertical position. Because all you're focusing on there is your body and the movement and uh, body part positions of your body. An external cue, on the other hand, would be to say, push the water with your hand and forearm directly backwards towards the wall you're swimming away from. So there you have an action focus, push the water you know the body parts you're working with, the hand and forearm, and directly backwards, you have a directional focus there towards the wall you're swimming away from. So it's all in the context of the environment. So as I said, research has shown in many domains that external cues are more effective in uh, acquiring motor skills than uh, internal cues. This has been shown in, for example, in balance tasks, in neuromuscular uh, and tasks in force and velocity tasks in change of direction and speed tasks in sports skills including uh, sports with some so-called implement like in dart golf tennis soccer and sports skills without this implement so for example jumping both vertically and horizontally and as well in continuous sports skills or endurance sports like swimming running sprinting and agility 
and we don't know quite why external cues work better than internal cues but uh, there are some theories including that uh, perhaps the brain is better at organizing its movement at self-organizing its movement uh, when you have the uh, when you have the external cue so so you're not just focusing on the body itself and uh, that's one one theory that that i saw uh, but either way uh, it seems to work better that's not to say that internal cues don't work but external cues are better and not just for motor skill acquisition but also for retention of those motor learning skills which is obviously super important so uh, tying this back to drilling what does this have to do with drilling well whenever you are working on some sort of technique improvement even if it's just in your full stroke swimming rather than in uh, doing drills uh, if you have some objective of improving your technique some aspect of your technique then you can consider how you can make that swimming or that drill have an external cue as your focus as your attentional focus for example, let's say you're doing a side kicking drill where you are on your side, typically with fins. You have one arm stretched out in front of you and you're kicking to generate propulsion. Your external cue could be stay completely parallel to the black line. That cue has an external attentional focus that will help you prevent snaking and serpentining in the water. You'll stay taut, uh, parallel and aligned with the black line. Another example would be uh, using the push the water directly backwards into the wall cue when performing a drill such as doggy paddle, for example, that focuses on the underwater propulsive phase of the stroke. But again, remember that this does not apply just to drills. You can learn motor skills within the full stroke of front crawl by just being very purposeful and deliberate in your practice knowing what you want your swimming to look like and using that, those deliberate practice habits with the right cues to move in, in move your swimming in that direction towards what you want it to look like. Of course, this is easier said than done. You probably uh, would benefit from uh, getting some coach to actually look at you and tell you what, you what you should be doing because even if it's easy in theory, it's not quite as easy in practice. Also knowing how to prioritize what sort of improvements to make is something that is not always very straightforward. But I'll leave this question at that. Do check out that article, Coaching Cues, that I'll link to in the episode description, and it's on the Science for Sport website. It's an absolutely brilliant read, uh, not just for uh, skill acquisition in triathlon, but in many different, uh, many different sports and uh, even just things like balance and things that might help us stay, stay healthy when we get, get older. So I found that super interesting and would recommend you go and read that. Now, the second question Steph asks about some resources related to managing training uh, as a female athlete and uh, with the menstrual cycle, etc. So this is a really great question. And uh, Steph, you mentioned having Stacey Sims' uh, book. I'll also mention that she has been on that triathlon show. I interviewed her in episode 105. And I bet that for almost anybody listening, if you know uh, anything about, if you have heard anything about uh, the menstrual cycle and endurance training then stacy sims is the name that springs to mind uh, because of her publishing her book roar etc and also being being a frequent guest on on many podcasts including that triathlon show and just being quite outspoken about it which is a great great thing uh, I haven't really listened to the episode with Stacey in a very long time, so I won't comment on anything in there, but rather I'll make the answer not based on what may be right or wrong with with that, but or or what or Stacey's opinions, 
but just make this answer about what we know today in 2020. And this is actually pretty easy because there was very recently a large meta-analysis published by a research group at Northumbria University. This uh, meta-analysis is called The Effects of Menstrual Cycle Phase on Exercise Performance, uh, a Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis. And uh, before going into summarizing the findings, I want to direct you to two great resources on the topic for further reading and listening. First, Alex Hutchinson wrote a great summary uh, of this meta-analysis in his Sweat Science column. I'll link to that. And also, Gabriel Martins from the Fuel the Pedal podcast interviewed two of the lead authors on this specific topic, on their meta-analysis, on his podcast. So, Fuel the Pedal, episode 35. Uh, I intend to try to get in touch with the researchers as well and get them on that triathlon show. But in the meantime, definitely worth your time to go and listen to that episode. Uh, so uh, the findings of the meta-analysis and what they did, they looked for studies that investigated how exercise performance is impacted through the different phases of the menstrual cycle when the levels of estrogen and progesterone rise and fall according to a, a predictable pattern. Uh, the theory behind this, uh, just to give you a little bit of background, is that during the part of the cycle where estrogen and progesterone is low, which is the early phase, Performance might be lower because estrogen has several potentially positive performance enhancing effects like anabolic effects on muscle and metabolic benefits including increased glycogen storage and fat utilization. And in contrast, when estrogen is high, performance would be higher. And this is also, it, progesterone has an impact as well because there are two phases within a normal cycle where estrogen is high. And during one of these phases, progesterone is also high, which is called the high hormone phase or referred to as the high hormone phase. And during the other uh, peak of estrogen, uh, progesterone is low. And theoretically, performance might be the best when estrogen is high and progesterone is low because progesterone to some extent inhibits the effect of estrogen. So this is all these different, uh, these rises and falls in estrogen and progesterone uh, form the, the theory behind suggestions of training differently in different stages of the menstrual cycle. But how does this translate into real-world uh, results? What, what, the, what have we found in science? So these researchers, they did uh, an exhaustive database search to find all the studies that compared performance in either strength or endurance performance outcomes or markers of performance such as VO2 max across at least two different phases of the menstrual cycle. And they included studies where the participants were eight, between 18 and 40 years old. What they found was 78 studies with a total of 1,193 participants that could be included in the review. And then they did, uh, they pulled the results and did statistical analysis, uh, which found that, and I quote, the results indicate that on average, exercise performance might be trivially reduced during the early follicular phase of the menstrual cycle when compared with all other menstrual cycle phases. Performance was consistent between all other menstrual cycle phases. And uh, my note here is that the early follicular phase referred to is those first five days of the cycle or so when both estrogen and progesterone is low. So in that sense, it was as expected when estrogen is low, there might be a trivially reduced performance, but trivially reduced is not really something to uh, to make any any large conclusions of. So 
I'll continue reading a bit from the discussion of this paper, uh, quoting directly what the authors say. In addition to the estimated trivial average effect, results from the meta-analysis models showed relatively large between-study variance, indicating that research design, participant characteristics, and type of performance measured might influence any effect. Furthermore, most studies that were included in this meta-analysis were classified as low in research quality, and as such, the confidence in the evidence reported in this meta-analysis is also low and should be interpreted with caution. Due to the trivial effect size, the large between-study variation, and the number of poor quality studies included in this review, general guidelines on exercise performance across the menstrual cycle cannot be formed. Rather, it is recommended that a personalized approach should be taken based on each individual's response to exercise performance across the menstrual cycle. So, that's what we know today in a nutshell. Uh, in other words, there's not enough good quality evidence to say that in this phase you should be doing this and in that phase you should be doing that uh, on a broad scale. Rather, each athlete and their coach, if they have a coach, need to take uh, a personalized approach to things. And if on the athlete's end they feel that in certain phases a change is needed, for example, it might be things like changing the amount or type of intensity, then that's or changing strength training or something like that then that's fine but not everybody will need to make uh, make any changes at all and in my experience i would say that most female athletes i have coached can train pretty much the same way throughout the cycle and it's not really bothering them but that's not to say that if this doesn't apply to you that there's anything wrong that you should be able to train the same way throughout the cycle it is simply to say that there is no scientific or experiential consensus on a standardized model for adapting training to the menstrual cycle. It simply needs to be personalized. And that's, that's it. And uh, yeah, I will link in the episode description to this meta-analysis and uh, to Alex Hutchinson's write-up about it and uh, the interviews on the Fuel the Pedal podcast. And uh, actually from listening to that podcast, I also found out that the lead author of the study, Kelly McNulty, she has her own podcast, which is called The Period of the Period, fittingly. So that might be a good one to give a listen if you want to stay up to date on new findings and research. I haven't listened to it myself, but uh, it might be worth giving it a shot. That's it for today. Keep sending in questions to michael at scientifictriathlon.com. And that's Michael with a K. In today's episode, you have uh, a number of links, so check out the episode description. Uh, plenty of articles, uh, research articles, previous episodes on the podcast, and uh, the pre-run and pre-swim mobility routines that I mentioned. This Q&A and all previous Q&As can be found on scientifictriathlon.com. And if you are interested in training plans or in coaching, uh, definitely have a look at those pages on the website as well. We would love to help you out in reaching your triathlon goals. Big thanks to our sponsors, Precision Hydration, that you can find on precisionhydration.com. Go and take their free online sweat test and get 15% off your entire order with the promo code thattriathlonshow15. And big thanks to Roka that you can find on roka.com. Check out their wetsuits, trisuits, swimskins, goggles, and high-performance eyewear and prescription glasses and sunglasses and get 20% off your order with the promo code that you can get on roka.com forward slash TTS. Thank you, as always, for listening. Keep training smart and keep loving triathlon. <laughs>